Let us go to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> Holy Father, thank you once again for the blessing of assembling together in the congregation of the Lord. We thank you for reminding us of our great need for you and your great holiness. We know these things in our head, but I am persuaded that we do not know them as rich and as glorious as they really are. As the beloved John said, we know not what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And making that statement still leaves us greatly in the dark. But it also gives us an anxious desire to know what it really is. To know you without sin. To know you in a great, greater and a fuller capacity than we can ever attain while we are living here upon this earth. Even as John closed out his epistle, so would we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, even so, Come quickly. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Again, we would ask that you would bless in such a way that we would live out our lives in peace, in harmony. And yet, we have to struggle not only with the world, not only with our great adversary, the devil, but sin within and sin without. For in reality, we are our own worst enemies. And yet we thank you for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be presumption, a presumptuous like the Pharisee that prayed thus within himself and was thankful he wasn't like other men. But at the same time, we want to 
be thankful in the proper way that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light and that we are not what we used to be. Help us to understand the balance as much as humanly possible. Now again, we would ask that you would bless the things that are said, that they would first be in agreement and in harmony with your word. More importantly, that they would be to the honor and to the glory of thy darling Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that it might be food for the souls of all who hear, as only you can apply. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off looking last Lord's Day in Galatians 3, uh, primarily in verses 13 and 14. Uh, we'll read those. We're talking about the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And therefore we see here that the redemptive work of Christ is uh, brought out plainly. And as we said last Lord's Day, I want to uh, clarify again that the uh, the Lord did not come to make redemption possible. He come to redeem. And that's what it says here. Christ hath redeemed. He didn't try to redeem. He didn't make a, an example of redemption. But He redeemed. And He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He paid for all of the sins for everyone for whom He represented. And those who preach a gospel that Christ has done all that He could, and now that it is left up to you and to do the rest, well, they believe a different gospel than I do. Uh, I believe that I can sing, and I believe we can sing Jesus paid it all and I like one of the versions of it in our red book it's one way I think in the blue book it's different but anyway Jesus paid it all all the debt I owe sin had left a crimson stain but Christ washed me whiter than snow we've had some snow uh, this year and I trust that every time we look at snow uh, it reminds of, uh, us of the redemptive work of Christ. It should, if nothing else. And Hebrews 9.12 said that He obtained eternal redemption. He didn't try to redeem, but He obtained eternal redemption. And Christ was made a curse for us. He knew no sin, but He 
was made sin for us. He was not made a sinner. There's a difference between being made sin and being a sinner. Because sin is a verb. Sinner is a noun. Christ was not a sinner. He was impeccable. Impeccable in every way. And we will not uh, move off of that uh, off of that landmark of the impeccability of Christ. Not only could he have sinned, but he didn't. That's not the truth. He could not have sinned because he was the Son of God in every way. But he made legal constitution for our sins, for our sins were imputed unto him. I want to turn to Isaiah 53 and read again that part of that uh, glorious passage. I've said this many times and y'all may get tired of me saying it, (coughs) but I, (coughs) I like what Thomas Watson said about Isaiah 53, that it's rather to be experienced than explained. But anyway, it it is a glorious passage. Verses 4 and 5, first of all, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And so we do find that our Lord Jesus Christ paid the sin debt for us in every way. He paid the sin debt for us in every way. And then dropping down into uh, down to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus Christ, when he said, it is finished on the cross, he was telling the truth in every way. He finished the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, we need to constantly keep this in mind because we as as the Galatians and as the Judaizers often do, we uh, try to think that we need to do more praying, more Bible reading, or do something else more in order for the Lord to accept us more. Beloved, He's not going to accept you any more than what He already does. And that's in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not accepted in that, you're not accepted at all. Oftentimes when we go through trials and afflictions and struggles of many ways, 
we think that God has either forsaken us or we think that God doesn't love us anymore. Beloved, that's when we ought to cherish the redemptive work of Christ more and more because God doesn't accept us on anything we do. And with, with regard to our justification, if we are indeed justified and redeemed by Him, God does not cast us away for any sins that we do. Now at the same time, one who is redeemed and one who is justified doesn't seek to live in sin. And I'm not giving an excuse for sin either, but what I'm trying to say is that we need to quit looking at our sins and look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Him. As Charles Spurgeon said when he was, uh, the Lord converted him, he was traveling in a snowstorm one day and as a teenager, and he uh, uh, went into a primitive Methodist meeting house. And the old man standing up there, uh, about all he said was, look unto Jesus, look unto Jesus, look unto Jesus. And finally the Lord opened old Spurgeon's eyes and he said he was able to see him as he had never seen him before. But we need to continue to look unto Jesus day by day by day by day. I know what it is to be in the valley of despond, almost paralyzed because of feeling sorry for myself and knowing at the same time that I need to be looking to Jesus. And beloved, you go through those experiences. We know a lot more in our head oftentimes than we do in our heart. I like what Brother Sergei, uh, never pronounced his last name properly, uh, Russian believer, but uh, he went through a, a, an affliction some years back and he said that, uh, I forgot exactly how it was, but he said he knew in his head that uh, all things work together for good and, and things of that nature. But it took, I think he said, two weeks for his heart to catch up with his head. And that's the way it is sometimes. Oh, John Warburton, one time when he was in dire straits and the Lord uh, delivered him out of his uh, poverty, which he lived most of his, all of his life really, he went over to the meeting house in order to give God thanks and he couldn't give God thanks. His heart was so cold. And it took about two weeks later, I think, before the Lord blessed him to be able to give the proper thanks. But my point is, you go through those things too. You go through those same wrestlings of your soul and thinking that you have to do something in order for God to accept you. But beloved, you're accepted in the beloved. He has redeemed you. He has paid for every sin. Every sin. 
every doubt, every unbelief, every lack of trust, every feeling sorry for yourself, every, all of those things, Christ has paid for them. And we need to give God thanks for what He has done for our souls and to rejoice in the riches of Christ. Yes, He was made a curse for us. He was made a curse for us. Like I said, Christ was not made sin for the world, but He was made sin only for the elect and for those whom the Father had given Him. Now I realize there are verses like 1 John 2, 2, where it talks about that He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. But the word world obviously is used many ways. And we need to always look into not only the immediate context, but to the context of the whole Scriptures. Let's just give a couple of three examples. Everybody is familiar. I say everybody. Uh, everybody that professes to be a Christian, I suppose, is familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, without going into all of the uh, true interpretation of that verse, we just look at the word, God so loved the world. What world did He love? What world did He love? Well, look at John 15. John 15. Picking up in verse 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit, uh, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love you, would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So now, is this the same world as John 3.16? Jesus said, I've chosen you out of the world. John 3.16 said, God so loved the world that Christ died for it. Well, what's the truth of the matter? Look at John 17. In verse 14, I have given them thy word that the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I have given them thy word that the world hath hated them, because they are not, excuse me, I've already read verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest taketh them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep, keep them from the evil. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So you see the word world is used in different ways. And what is the word what is the world that God died for? Well, there's two uh, I think two valid interpretations. One is the world of his people, the world of the elect. But I really think that John first uh, John two two, when it talks about he's the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, he's talking about just simply Jew and Gentile. That is not limited to the Jews. The Jews thought everything with regard to God was limited to them. But he was saying that, no, it's not limited to you. It goes out to the Gentiles as well. Not to each and every one, but only to those that the Father loved before the world began. But he was made a curse for us Notice this, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham extends to all of the families of the earth and this includes Gentiles. You see that in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. In fact, I want to go back to Genesis 12. We'll take up 12 and 15 eventually. Because there's one part in Genesis 12 that I want to emphasize that some commentators overlook. But we just read the first three verses. Now the Lord had said, That's an important verb there. The Lord had said. In other words, uh, some commentators, particularly the Armenian commentators, they say the Lord said to Abram. They think that's the first time that God spoke to Abraham. But God spoke to Abraham in Ur of Chaldee. Abraham had faith in Ur of Chaldee. Hebrews 11, I think verse 8 tells us that, 7 or 8, that by faith he left Ur of Chaldee. So, now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
when you see that word families, that's going to include you, Gentile believer. You're part of this blessing. You're part of this blessing. Christ redeemed us that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us. Then in Genesis 15, we see that this blessing of Abraham is spoken of again. And we'll start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, for I am thy shield and exceeding great reward. Let me pause there for just a moment. If you have received the blessing of Abraham, God is your shield and your great reward as well. When you read these things in, in, your, in the Scripture readings, and all of these promises that are given regarding the covenants, realize that you are included. It was given to Abraham and to his seed. And we know that from Genesis, uh, excuse me, Galatians 3.15 that the seed is Christ. But we also know that everyone that has the faith of Abraham is to receive the blessings of Abraham. Now let's continue reading. And Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give me seeing I go childless and this steward of my house uh, is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, uh, and Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in thy house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now just think of this. Eliezer, evidently, was the son of a slave. He was a slave born in Abraham's house. And he was a faithful slave. And Abraham was going to make him his heir. But God said, no, that's not to be. Verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it the seed, not Abraham's faith, but the seed to him for righteousness. Christ is our righteousness, not our faith. God we are accepted in the righteousness of Christ. We're not accepted in our faithfulness. God gives us faith. We receive the blessings of God by faith. And all such as that. But our righteousness is in Christ. And this blessing was given... And while the, with, without question, this, just, this, 
this verse applies to the justifying righteousness of Christ and the salvation that was given to us in eternal glory. In 2 Timothy 2.10 and 1 Peter 5.10 talks about our salvation that's given to us in eternal glory. I am willing to believe, and you don't have to believe this, this is where my eschatology comes in, I'm willing to believe that the land is included also. Because notice in the same chapter, in Genesis 15, drop down to verse 16. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You say, when did Israel receive all of that? Well, some people think they did, but I've never found where they had all the land from the river Euphrates. I believe they will someday. And I believe we'll be alive when that happens. And there won't be any, unless somebody thinks I'm a dispensationalist, which I'm not, there won't be any rebuilt temple, there won't be any uh, animal sacrifices, because we won't need that. Christ is our sacrifice. But I believe there will be a time, of course those of you that have heard me through the book of Revelation, I believe it will, I think, probably be in the millennium. But it might be in the eternal world. As far as I, I don't know, we don't know what it's all going to be. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the holy city, the city of God, has come down from God out of heaven. And the tabernacle of, of God dwells on the new earth. So it might be then. So, But somehow, I think all of this is going to come to pass. I believe the, the blessings of Abraham... All of the blessings, whatever they are. And if you don't, like I said, if you don't agree with me on, on my eschatology, that's all right. We won't argue about it. We won't fuss about it. As most of you know, Brother Zach and I pastored together for uh, about 17, 15 years. And uh, he was all millennialist, and I'm a pre-millennialist. We got along together and still love each other and when he preached through Revelation a few years ago, I listened to all of his sermons uh, on through the book of Revelation while I was preaching through the book of Revelation. So uh, we don't have any animosity toward each other. Uh, it may be most likely all of us are wrong somewhat in our eschatology. We may be as, uh, as mixed up as the Jews were in Christ's first coming. But I, I cannot see how you would separate verses 18 through 20, out from the first part of 
Genesis 15. So I believe the blessings of Abraham will come upon you. Just as Abraham looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God, so shall we. And Abraham did not inherit the land of Canaan. Hebrews 11 said that they did not uh, in, receive the promises. The only thing that Abraham ever owned in the land of Canaan was the cave of Machpelah. That's all he ever owned. And so, you can see that the blessings of Abraham are going to come upon you as well. And as we mentioned last Lord's Day, I believe, just as Abraham was called the friend of God, so are you likewise called the friend of God. There's much more that can be said about the redemptive work of Christ and also that of us receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith. Beloved, the reason that you have faith and the reason that you are who that you are and love the Lord Jesus Christ is because the Holy Spirit has been given unto you. You say, well, I don't feel like it. It's not a matter of feeling. Just like faith is not a matter of feeling. How do, you don't live by feeling. You live by faith. And what is faith? Just simply obeying the Word of God. And when you are doing the things of, the, of God, the Spirit of God is in you whether you feel like it or not. Too many people try to think that they're going to have a Pentecostal experience or something of that nature. Well, beloved, there's only one Pentecost. There's only one Pentecost. Sometimes God visits your soul in a special way. But most of the time, He doesn't. It's just that daily, daily grind. Verses 15 through 18, I've kind of divided this up as much as I, well as I could. It's talking about the covenant. We here take great delight in the covenant. <coughs> a lot of times, people that talk a lot about the covenant are people that are reformed. But when we decided to start here and come upon a name, I, I suggested that we use Covenant Primitive Baptist and to emphasize the fact that we believe in the New Covenant and that we're New Covenant believers we, and we are, and Baptists also believe in the Covenant. And we, and I wanted to set uh, anyway, wanted to make a name uh, for that. And I don't know whether you remember or not, but I preached several sermons on the covenant. But I'm not going to do that at this time. Brethren, I'll read the, these 
three verses, four verses. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. That includes you again. He saith not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. In this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God giveth it to Abraham a promise. Now as we said before, as we said here, we pointed out that the seed is Christ. And there can and there can be no change in the covenant when it is confirmed. And when it's a covenant or when is a will or when is a testament confirmed when the man that makes it dies when that happens there's no changing of it well our testator the Lord Jesus Christ has died and so the covenant cannot be increased or decreased done whatsoever But notice in verse 15, first of all, lest I forget it, I think I've mentioned it before, but notice how he starts the verse, brethren. In verse 1, he calls them foolish Galatians. And in verse 3, he talks about them being foolish. So to me, Paul is not coming down upon them by using the word foolish. And it wasn't a harsh condemnation, but he was rebuking them as a loving father. And we need to realize that sometimes when we're working with individuals who may be a little mixed up on the doctrine. You know, sometimes people are wanting to relegate people to the to horror realms of antiquity just because they don't agree with them. Well, we can't always do that. We, it took us a long time to come to truth. And it takes others a long time. If somebody hasn't heard these things before, it'll take a long time. Several years ago, uh, I was blessed to uh, preach to some Cambodians. But the first time I uh, met with them, I tried to talk to them about the Lord. They didn't know English. I didn't know Cambodian. We didn't get anywhere. They looked at me strangely, and rightly so. But even after I was blessed to get an interpreter, 
who was an English teacher. Uh, he was a Cambodian, but he was teaching English. And uh, uh, one of the first sermons that I was preaching to them, I was preaching out of Genesis. And I was preaching about the creation. And when I talked about God making woman from a rib of Adam, the translator just stopped and looked at me with his mouth gaping open in unbelief. He didn't know whether he had really understood me or not. He said, you mean a, a rib, a, a real rib out of, out of Adam's side? I said, yes. And so when he translated it to the people, they too were astounded. And sometimes you may run across people. They're totally ignorant of the Scriptures. Most people are ignorant of the Scriptures. They think they know what the Bible says. I, I heard a, a, a statistic uh, this week uh, in a podcast that I was listening to. They gave several dis- statistics. And I thought, well, I'm going to remember this, remember that. But I didn't. But there's one I did remember. How many, what percentage of the people in America do you think reads the Bible every day? 10%. And there's over 50% that never read it. So it's no wonder when you come across people and you talk to them about the Bible, they have no idea what you're talking about. And you have to break it down to them in the simplest of terms. And these Gentile Galatians, whom Paul had already preached the gospel to them, they were led astray by some Judaizers that came along, probably some Pretty intelligent folks. But Paul calls them brethren. Brethren. They're still brethren. There's many, there's, I have more than one friend, many friends, that don't dot I's and cross T's like I do. I can not only call brethren, but I can also call them friend. And I like that. I like that. God confirmed the covenant. And without going into all of that, (coughs) I'll just say that Gil made this statement, God confirmed the covenant by two immutable things, His Word and His oath or His will and testament. That's how Hebrews 6, uh, 17 talks about by two immutable things. What were the two immutable things? God's Word and God's will. Now the promise was originally given to Abraham. We read that in Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. But the promise was also given More than once. Look at Genesis 26. 
Genesis 26. This is still Abraham. Verse 2. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. No, this is Isaac. Excuse me. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Excuse me. Verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed will I give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto thy father, unto Abraham thy father. And then in Genesis 35, to Jacob, verses 9 through 12, And God appeared unto, unto Jacob when he came out of Pandanaram, and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy, uh, thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name, and he shall call his and he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee, I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give it. So you see the covenant was given more than once. But it says in Galatians that the covenant was given and was confirmed 430 years before the law. Well, if the covenant was confirmed and it was 430 years before the law. Then what do we find here? Abraham was saved, put it in modern vernacular, before the law ever came along. Therefore, the law has nothing to do with salvation. If Abraham was saved prior to that, which he was, Now I'm going to I'm going to impose on your patience for just a moment about this 430 years. This is 430 years the law was given after the blessing was given to Abraham. Most people think that Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. But they weren't. They were in Egypt somewhere around 200, 210 years. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to read what Gil had to say, I thought he had a good summary of this. And we'll pause and look at some of the passages. But of a peculiar confirmation of it 
that is uh, the blessing, to Abraham, either by frequent repetition thereof, or by annexing an oath unto it, or rather by those rites and usages, and even wonderful appearances recorded in Genesis 15, 9, which was 430 years, Genesis 15, 9, 430 years before the law was given, which are us are thus computed by the learned Prairius, as some commentator prior to Gill's time, from the confirmation of the covenant and taking Hagar for his wife to the birth of Isaac, 15 years. From the birth of Isaac to the birth of Jacob, 60 years. I've got verses for all of these. I, I, may not, I don't have time to read all of these this morning, but if you want them, I can give them to you. From the birth, now notice, from the time of him taking Hagar to his wife to the birth of Isaac, was 13 years. 15 years from the birth of Isaac to the birth of Jacob. Uh, no, excuse me. From the birth of Isaac to the birth of Jacob, 60 years. That's in Genesis 25-26. From the birth of Jacob to his going down into Egypt, 130 years. Genesis 47-9. Jacob appeared before Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked him, said, how old are you? Jacob said, I'm 130 years old and I'm not as old as my father's. That's Barbara's paraphrase. <laughs> From going down to Egypt to Jacob's death, 17 years. Genesis 27, uh, 47, 28. From the death of Jacob to the death of Joseph in Egypt, 53 years. See that in Genesis 50 and 6. From the death of Joseph to the birth of Moses, 75 years. From the birth of Moses to the going down of the children of Israel from Egypt and giving the law, 80 years. All of that totaling 430 years. And then Abraham goes into, I mean, excuse me, Gil goes into uh, some other <coughs> statistics here. I'll read them quickly. The Jews reckon the 400 uh, years spoken of Abraham in Genesis 15:13 and mentioned by Stephen in Acts 7:6 from the birth of Isaac. But they reckon the 430 years, the number given by Moses, Exodus 12 and 40 by the apostle here to begin from the com confirming the covenant between the pieces that is when the, the smoking flax went through those uh, animals that Abraham had cut in pieces there in Genesis 15 though somewhat differently counted 
says one of the chronologers, we reckon 430 years from the 70th year of Abraham, from the whence of the birth of Isaac, were 30 years, and from the thence going out of Egypt, 400 years. But anyway, it's basically around 200, 210 years the children of Israel were in Egypt. Most of the time people think they were in Egypt 430 years. And the reason for that, time has caught up with me, I may read them this afternoon, is because of Genesis 15, 13, Exodus 12, 20, and Acts 7, 6. People read those and they think that the 430 years is how long Israel was in Egypt. But I like what A.T. Robertson said, quoting a man by the name of Burton. It is immaterial to Paul's argument which chronology is adopted except that the longer the covenant had been in force, the more impressive is his statement. In other words, 430 years from Abraham to the time of the covenant shows that the uh, that the the, the the covenant or the law had nothing to do with Abraham's salvation. The law had nothing to do with Abraham's justification. And we'll see this a little bit later uh, this afternoon. We'll see that circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's justification nor his salvation. Because all of that was before Abraham, uh, the righteousness of God being imputed to Abraham was before he was circumcised and it was before the covenant was given. And so if, if, if salvation is prior to circumcision and if, which it doesn't, circumcision takes the place of baptism, how can baptism be a means of grace? For the children. They can't. And therefore you see that. It's all. Uh, of God. Nothing of man. Nothing of man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father we come before you. And. Know that we have looked at some. Details. Of the study of your word but they're very vital to the understanding of our salvation. That there's nothing in us whereby we can claim to be a child of grace. It's simply by Your sovereign grace alone apart from any works of man. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.